In the last lecture, you'll recall, we discussed that experiment done by Stanley Miller in 1953, a classic experiment where he was able to show that you can um, synthesize organic compounds, relatively simple ones, but organic compounds nonetheless abiotically, without other organic compounds to do the job, under conditions that were thought to prevail on the primitive Earth. Now, in today's lecture, we're going to pick up where we left off with that discussion. Remember, our interest in the origin of life is that it's going to tell us something about how to define life. But where this material will take us today and in the next lecture is to begin to introduce the concept of information in living systems, framing the central theme for this first part of the course. The significance of Miller's experiment was simply to show that non-biological processes could result in the formation of organic molecules, including amino acids and nucleotides and those other things we talked about last time. But, as I told you last time, these organic molecules that Miller got were still relatively simple, and they thus only represented the first small step. Now, let me explain in more detail what I meant by that. You see, amino acids, nucleotides, and so forth by themselves don't get us very far because we need to get these, um, these simple organic molecules linked together. They act as building blocks to make the more complicated stuff that we're really made out of. Now, the technical term for this is polymerization. In other words, complex organic molecules like proteins or, say, DNA or RNA, these things are polymers that are long chains of building blocks, which we might call monomers. So what uh, Miller was able to do was he was able to make the building blocks but living things need to have those building blocks strung together in polymers. As we'll see later in the course, actually starting in just a couple of lectures, polymers are essential because the most important biological molecules, especially proteins and the nucleic acids, DNA and um, RNA, are polymers made up of different combinations of just a few monomer building blocks. Now, ordinarily in living things today, there are a whole series of specialized proteins. We call these proteins enzymes, and we'll talk about that more later in the course. But these proteins acting as enzymes are what are responsible for building these polymers out of the monomeric building blocks. What happened on the early Earth in the absence of this specialized protein machinery that could possibly have led to polymerization? Could they have also, could polymers also have arisen abiotically? Now, the first evidence that this was possible actually came fairly early on, again in the late 1950s, and it was uh, uh, work by Sidney Fox, who was at the University of Miami. Fox took Miller's experiment one step further. He was able to take, for example, amino acids that might have been created in a, an experiment like Miller's and get them to start joining together, but only under certain conditions. For a few kinds of amino acids in just the right proportions, at just the right temperature, the right amount of time that you might heat them, he could get short polymers of amino acids. By the way, I'll use this term periodically through the course. We call a polymer of amino acids a protein, but we also call it a polypeptide chain. And that's simply because the, the chemical bond that links these monomeric amino acids to form that chain is called a peptide bond. So I might say polypeptide chain, I might say protein. 
what um, Fox was able to do was to get fairly short polypeptides, showing that you can get spontaneous abiotic polymerization. The problem was is that Fox could only do this under a very narrow range of conditions. In Miller's work, you could just throw a bunch of stuff into those flasks and you'd get some sort of organic molecules, but Fox's work required much more controlled conditions, conditions that are unlikely to have been found on the early Earth. But Fox and a number of other scientists speculated that maybe you could increase the hit rate. Maybe you could get more spontaneous um, formation of polymers if you had some sort of non-biological catalyst. Now, a catalyst is just a term that refers to something, anything, that makes a chemical reaction run faster. Okay, so what Fox and others suggested was that maybe there was something that was not biological that could catalyze these polymerization reactions. And specifically, what they suggested, thinking about the composition and the structure of the early Earth, was that perhaps there were certain kinds of clays that acted as, or, as, as um, inorganic, abiotic um, catalysts. Why clay? Well, it turns out that some kinds of clays, when they dry out, form very regular lattice-like structures, almost crystalline, not really crystals, but, but very regular structures. And furthermore, these clays will also have weak electrical charges on their surface. And these weak electrical charges can adhere organic molecules. Now, the idea here is that sometime in the early Earth, the shores of a primitive ocean had a bed of clay. And as the organic molecules that were being created in that um, primitive ocean got lapped up onto the shore, they adhered to that clay. And the clay, because of the regular order, the spacing, and holding those molecules in place, would increase the probability that you'd get some sort of spontaneous polymerization. Well, that's an interesting idea. Is there any evidence that this could work? I mean, we don't know what the primitive Earth was like on that scale, but it turns out that recent work by James Ferris, who's at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, has shown exactly that this process does work under abiotic conditions in the laboratory. Ferris and his colleagues have been able to synthesize not only short polypeptides, but also short stretches of DNA from the component building blocks, amino acids on the one hand, nucleotides on the other, that were created from experiments like those done by Miller. Now, of course, the, the proteins and DNA that Ferris and others have produced are not functional. In other words, these are, these are strings of monomers that have been polymerized, but, but they're not really, they don't make any sense. It's not like they're a string that would do anything like a real biological mo uh, molecule might. But it's a start. We can postulate that biological polymers could arise spontaneously. Okay, so let's imagine. Let's imagine that we've got complex polymers. Let's imagine that we've got a primitive ocean brimming with, with a whole bunch of, of organic polymers, what's been called um, in the popular press the primordial soup. Where do we go from there? Let's imagine even that some of these polymers, by chance, have come together as strings that, that might even have some sort of useful biological function, like modern polymers. The experiments of Miller... Fox, Ferris, and others have shown that this is possible. But even with all of this, we still don't have anything approaching what we'd want to call life. Why not? Well, because we know that the organic molecules that make us up are not just a jumble of things floating around in a primordial soup. They're highly ordered. And specifically, they come in highly ordered packages. 
There are many such kinds of packages in living systems, and we're going to be talking about packaging throughout the course. But the most common kind of package, or I should say really the most fundamental package, is what we call the cell. All living things are made of units called cells. We're going to talk more about cells in the next lecture. So minimally, something to be living, for something to be living, requires a barrier between the living part and the non-living part. And that barrier is what would define the, the outline, the barrier of what we might want to call a cell. Now, modern cells are very complex, and we're going to talk about those in the next lecture. But, but is it possible that some cell-like structure could have arise, arisen, again, spontaneously on the early Earth? Here, too, laboratory experiments suggest that the answer is yes. I won't go into the details. There's been a lot of work on These are called early life studies. But a number of experiments have been done that demonstrate, under conditions that are not too, um, too rigorous, the kinds of conditions that might have happened in the early Earth, you can get aggregations of abiotically produced complex organic molecules that will spontaneously form themselves into cell-like structures. So these kinds of, of spontaneously made cells in the laboratory are generically called protobionts. I'll use that term later. Protobiont literally just means, you know, sort of first biological thing, protobiont. And you can make protobionts. It's actually not too difficult to do that in the lab. You can make them under a number of different kinds of conditions with a number of different kinds of organic molecules. For example, if you have the right kind of lipids, remember those are the molecules that make up fats, if you have the right kind of lipids, you can almost literally just put them in water and they spontaneously form a, a package where there's a membrane of lipids that enclose some central space. Now, the most remarkable kind of protobiont, one that's been called a coacervate, is one that has been made to self-assemble out of a solution that includes polypeptides, short protein-like molecules, nucleic acids like DNA and RNA, polysaccharides, that's another term that we would use for polymerized sugars. Remember, the sugars are a, a group of organic um, molecules that we talked about previously. So if you get a bunch of polypeptides and, and nucleic acids and sugars together, and now you need to have the conditions a little bit more controlled here, you can nonetheless get these to self-assemble into a cell-like object. And what's really interesting about this work on co coacervates is if you then throw into the mix some real biological molecules, for example, a protein enzyme that you've taken from a real living cell, a modern cell, and you, you extract that enzyme and you put it in, with these coacervates, they're just in your laboratory dish. The coacervates can take up those enzymes. They'll, they'll bring them inside themselves. And in fact, those enzymes will start working inside the coacervates. So what enzymes do is they process one kind of biological molecule into another, and we would call what they're working on the substrate, and they produce some product. And so once these enzymes have been taken up by the coacervate, it will also start taking up the substrates for those enzymes doing the reaction and putting out the products. Now, we've given it the molecular tool, the enzyme, but nonetheless, we gave the coacervate the hammer and it started hitting something. This is getting really remarkably close to something that we might want to call living. So, we are able to make primitive cells, and actually this seems like it's not, I mean, make in the laboratory things like primitive cells. I, I really shouldn't say we make primitive cells. Nobody's actually made 
a cell that anybody, any biologist would look and say, oh, that's a cell you just made that. Actually, people are trying to do that now, but it hasn't been done yet. But we can make cell-like things, and it doesn't seem to be any big trick. Um, these things spontaneously form. But I want to step back again, because we're really talking about the origin of life, and I don't want to mislead you to think that this is an easy problem, that, oh, no problem, life has arisen spontaneously on the planet Earth. It's still a really long way from even the most sophisticated coacervate to a kangaroo, say, or any other kind of organism. I mean, how did we get, let's imagine we have some protocell, some protobiont that arises spontaneously. How did we get from that very first thing that we might want to call a cell to all the enormously complicated and diverse stuff that we know is living today? Well, we don't know the answer to that question, and we probably never will. But we do know part of the answer, and part of the answer has to do with reproduction. And that's what I want to turn our attention to next. Reproduction. How does a living system reproduce? Or more precisely, what minimally do we need to get reproduction? Now, reproduction is interesting at this point to us for really two reasons. First of all, how reproduction arose, that is, how the ability to reproduce arose, is an especially tricky problem for those people who are trying to understand the origin of life. And in fact, it's the problem that's most debated today. Second, however, reproduction, how reproduction works, really will lead us to our first definition of what we mean by biological information. And that's where I want to go to, you see. And also, in so doing, once we get to biological information, we will then begin to be able to introduce the connection between information in living systems and this important property of living systems that they change over time that they evolve. And that's a point we're going to get to in the next lecture. But let me begin to get to this first point about how reproduction works, or what we need for reproduction to work, by going back in time. Now, I want to go back and set the stage, and let's say we're back in time, and we have some sort of warm tide pools in the primitive ocean, and we've got some proto-cells, some things like coacervates. Maybe they're even really good ones. Maybe they're things we'd want to call cells. You know, they, they're actually incorporating organic material. They have a bunch of biological molecules which are active. They do all sorts of stuff. And, and you look at them and, and you might say, yes, that is functioning like a primitive, simple cell might function. Now, here's the issue. Let's say that by chance, one of these protobionts just happens to come up with some unique new property or trait. This trait could be anything. I mean, for example, it could be a new kind of molecule that makes this uh, cell more durable. Or it could be a new kind of molecule that increases its ability to take up material from the outside. Or it might be a molecule that makes it more efficient at processing that material. In, in, in most cases, it's going to be a molecule at this stage. But now it has a new trait, a new property. And so now this protobiont is different from the rest. And in fact, we might say, I don't want to sort of, um, uh, you know, well, we might say it's a better protobiont. I mean, I don't want to make you think it's somehow better in a real sense, but it's somehow um, uh, more efficient, better at doing its job. Here's the problem. We've only got one of them. That individual won't last forever. 
And even if it does, there would only be one of them. Now, why is this a problem? Why do I call this a problem? Well, it's a problem only in the sense that it would be nice, if this is a useful trait, for other individuals to have this trait. Now, I mean, the reason I say it would be nice is only because it would help us explain something about life. It would help us explain how we got from a coacervate to kangaroos and things like that, because presumably what we've got to do is to have these kinds of improvements gradually accumulate over time. I mean, a simple protobiont doesn't do much. A kangaroo does a lot. Somehow between here and there, a lot of new traits must have arisen. I mean, an unbelievable number of new traits must have arisen. Well, if every time a new trait arises and we can't pass it on, then it means every individual is going to have to somehow randomly come up with that new trait. It would be very inefficient, if nothing else. So you can see, I think, how this issue leads us to the question of reproduction. Because our problem, if it's a problem, would be solved if our protobiont could reproduce itself in a way that would pass that useful trait that it's come up with somehow onto its progeny. Now, reproduction simply speaking, isn't really sufficient. Now, I want to make that point by going back to the, to the early Earth and imagine that we've got some protobionts and one might uh, have a useful trait. How is it going to reproduce? Well, what you might imagine, and what a lot of cells in the modern world do today, all of them, in fact, is they reproduce by splitting in two. You have one cell, it grows a little bit larger, pinches off, it, grows, it splits into two cells. In a sense, that's reproduction. But it's not enough to just grow larger and split into two. Why not? Well, you see, if that trait is a molecule, which of the daughter cells gets the molecule? I mean, even if there's a lot of it, let's say that, that the parent cell that's going to split in two has a lot of these molecules, so each daughter cell gets half of it. Well, as those daughter cells divide, then each of their daughters gets half of it, and eventually this property would fade away. What we need instead is for these primitive cells to somehow be able to make completely new and accurate copies of themselves, to make accurate copies of the parts of themselves, say the molecule that we're talking about. They have to be able to store information about the structure of that molecule and somehow transmit that stored information about building the molecule to its offspring so that its offspring could build their own. How such a mechanism for storing and transmitting this kind of information about building molecules is the most unresolved question about the origin of life. Now we all know that there is such a molecule in modern cells. A molecule that acts as what you might say a blueprint for making more molecules. And that molecule you're probably aware of, it's called deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA for short a kind of nucleic acid. Now we're going to begin to look at DNA in some detail beginning in a couple of lectures. For now, all we need to know is that DNA actually passes its information onto another kind of nucleic acid, RNA, and then the information goes from RNA into proteins. This is the way that information works in modern cells. We're going to talk a lot about this in a few lectures. But for the moment, just note that DNA is, in this sense, acting as a kind of a blueprint. It's not exactly a blueprint as we see. It's actually different in blueprint in a lot of ways. And proteins are the product of this blueprint. 
Proteins are the things, as we'll see again, um, that actually do most of the real work in modern cells. And so in modern cells, we have our blueprint DNA, which passes the information on through a, pro uh, um, a process we'll call transcription later to another nucleic RNA, which acts as just an intermediary to carry that information to a process by which the information is translated, as we say, into different kinds of proteins. But here we encounter a really pro uh, serious problem, a catch-22. DNA could not have been the storage molecule that first arose with early life. Why not? The reason is, is that DNA can't replicate itself. DNA actually requires, as we'll see, a huge number of other proteins acting as enzymes to replicate it. So DNA in modern cells contains information, and it can be replicated, but only if there are proteins to do the replication, replication job. Now, proteins that could do that replication job might have arisen sometime in the early planet or, or early history of life on Earth, but they couldn't have arisen unless there was DNA, or they couldn't have, have been maintained unless there was DNA to store their code. So we would need to postulate simultaneously the creation of DNA that could store information about proteins and proteins that could then replicate that DNA. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, actually, logically, neither could have come first because DNA and proteins can't exist functionally without each other in modern cells. And it's unbelievably improbable to think that just the right kinds of proteins and just the right kinds of DNA happen to arise spontaneously sometime in the history of life. What was needed instead was for the origin of some kind of molecule that could do both of these things. It could replicate itself, so it didn't need any help replicating itself, and it could do other useful things in the cell, right? Because the point is to have a blueprint, a code, for making the useful molecules that a cell wants to pass on. So we want to have a molecule that can both do useful things, the, the job of the cell, and make more of itself. Now we're beginning to think that when life arose, the molecule that did that was the nucleic acid RNA, or some earlier form of what we today know as RNA. Why do we think that? Well, actually, beginning in the 1960s, researchers had begun to suspect that RNA might have acted as the first blueprint, or what we're going to start calling now genetic material. Because in the laboratory, again, with these early life kinds of experiments, it is possible to put in some kinds of RNA and have that RNA, oh, I, I should say, you have to put in the RNA, which is a polymer, and then put in some building blocks, we call those nucleotides, that that polymer will be made up of. And under the right conditions of temperature and other chemistry, but abiotic chemistry, it is possible for that RNA to be replicated. It's got to be replicating itself. Basically, the RNA in the solution somehow acts as a template that helps the monomers come together in the right way and also get poly uh, polymerized. So at least some kinds of RNA under some conditions can self-replicate, at least on a limited scale. I mean, we're talking about short strings here, 40 or 50, and as we'll see, that you know, real genetic material in, in organisms like us we're, is going to have billions of, of these monomers strung together, not 40 or 50. So a second breakthrough, really, 
that led people to think that RNA might be the first information processing molecule came in 1983 when Thomas Cech, who was at the University of Colorado, actually discovered that in modern cells there are some kinds of RNA that do act as catalysts the way protein enzymes do. That is, they perform some important biochemical tasks in the cell, even in modern cells. Now, we won't talk about the details of those RNAs, these catalytic RNAs. They're, they're generally called ribozymes, and they're involved in cellular processes that actually in modern cells are involved in DNA processing, but the point, processing of DNA, but the point here is that these ribozymes are functioning as catalytic molecules just like protein enzymes are. So we've got two things now. We've got evidence that RNA can replicate itself and also evidence, even in modern cells, that RNA can have some sort of catalytic enzyme function. Taken together, these two sets of results suggest that in the very earliest stages of life, you know, really that, that must have been a magical point where a non-living protobiont somehow slipped over the, the edge into the state where we might want to call it a living cell. That, that's, that happened in what we would now call an RNA world, where RNA which in modern cells really primarily acts just as an intermediate between DNA and proteins, actually dominated as the key biological molecule, the molecule that did the work of those primitive cells, that, that catalyzed reactions that allowed those cells to grow and, and so forth, and also served as its own genetic blueprint for replicating itself. Well, at some point... After the RNA world, things had to have changed. RNA had gotten the system rolling, according to this hypothesis, but eventually DNA and proteins took over. DNA took over the job of being the information-bearing molecule, being the molecule that holds codes for other molecules and is replicated. And proteins took over the job of doing all of the catalytic and other kinds of work of a cell. And RNA became regulate, reg, uh, relegated to just simply being an intermediate in the process. Now, why this would happen, if you know something, as we will learn in a few lectures, about proteins and, and DNA, actually is fairly obvious if you look at the state of affairs today. Proteins are extraordinarily versatile molecules. As we'll see later, they do an enormous number of tasks. Their versatility comes from the fact that they can assume all sorts of complicated shapes. And as we'll see, those shapes are what make protein function work in a way that RNAs can't. The chemical properties of RNA are such that it can only assume a limited number of shapes and therefore only assume a limited number of catalytic functions. So proteins clearly took over the job of doing all the work in the cell because they're really good at it once we get real proteins. DNA, as we'll see in just a few lectures, assumes a particular kind of chemical configuration that makes it particularly good at storing and replicating information in a way that RNA is not particularly good. So once we have DNA, it's so much better than RNA at making more copies of itself 
at storing that information that it took over that job. And RNA, well, this is sort of a little rough on RNA, but it faded into just the intermediate. This brings us to our first definition of information, or brings into focus, I should say, our first definition of information, which is um, the information that is going to store <laughs> um, something about the structure of biologically useful molecules. And we now know that that information has to be in a form where it can be replicated and passed on to offspring. In the next lecture, what we're going to do is begin to see how this view of information and how specifically this information is reproduced leads to another key property of living systems that they change over time. But before we do that, or while we're doing that, in the next lecture, we're also going to take a little detour. Because we're, the first part of this course is about information and evolution, but there are a few basic things we need to know. And what we're going to do also next lecture is talk about how biological systems are organized in a hierarchical fashion and how particular levels of that hierarchy actually bring questions into, uh, in biology into particularly sharp focus, those levels being on the one hand the cell and on the other hand the organism. And that's where we'll pick up next time.